And so we're going to look uh, at a big uh, section of Scripture this morning. Uh, chapter 19, uh, verses uh, 23, all the way through uh, the end of the chapter, verse 41. So uh, there, starting in verse 23. It says, uh, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Uh, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that only in Ephesus, you see that here not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. And there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they were rushed together into the theater, dragging them with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So we see uh, here that Demetrius, the silversmith, he, he kind of works uh, his craftsman friends uh, into a frenzy, and uh, it, actually they begin a riot. And we just read it, so I don't need to rehash all of it for you. But before we even get to that, I kind of wanted to talk about um, a, a personal thing uh, that is just so you can get to know me a little bit better, because it's always good for people to know the pastor that's preaching to them, where they're coming from. Uh, I love movies, and uh, of all the movies I love, one of my favorites, uh, besides Star Wars, I'm more well-rounded than that, is uh, I love James Bond movies. And it probably is because, uh, as, a, as a young kid, my mom was always watching James Bond movies. And so it's like the one thing me and my mom have in common. And uh, and so we would watch James Bond movies together, and like I, it wasn't just like the new stuff. Like I would watch the old James Bond movies, and so I've I've, I've seen them all. Um, but I, as I was thinking about this uh, passage and uh, what it says about our world and kind of what we see going on here, one particular James Bond movie came to mind, and it's not even one of my favorites necessarily, uh, but it is a pretty classic one that even if you haven't seen it, you've probably heard of it, and that is the 1973. Roger Moore, The Man with the Golden Gun. Have, have you guys seen this movie? See, I love this now. I can talk to you all, and you, I can see like heads like bobbing and stuff like that. Before, it was just the camera would go up and down or back and forth, and um, that was, that's, just, that's just the camera speaking. So now I know whether or not I'm, you guys are tracking with me. But The Man with the Golden Gun, if you've never seen the movie, the, the, the gist of it is this. It's kind of a crazy uh, idea like most Bond movies uh, are, especially the ones back in the 70s. But and the idea was that the man with the golden gun was this uh, uh, sharpshooter, and a marksman, and, and he wanted to, he was out to prove that he was the best marksman in the world. And so what he would do is he would invite uh, hitmen and marksmen and uh, other guys who were good at the same thing uh, to his island uh, where he had basically a funhouse set up. Uh, he would entrap them into this funhouse where uh, it was filled with uh, all these mirrors and uh, different uh, dummies and mannequins and all this stuff to distract them. Uh, he, he'd get them in there and, uh, and then kind of duel off with them. And, and so uh, here, the opening scene is a scene where, where he, he brings in this hitman and uh, he's kind of walking through this. Basically, a, it's like a funhouse at a fair sort of deal where there's all this stuff around. 
Uh, and what you see going on is that uh, these guys who are the best at what they do in the world, they, they have this finely honed in skill and they've mastered their craft. Uh, they're all of a sudden in a place where uh, there's so much noise and, and, and voices. They're actually, uh, the, the man with the golden gun's uh, sidekick is over a loudspeaker kind of talking to them and throwing them off and getting in their head and all that sort of thing. That these people who are so good at what they do, um, have so much going on around them that um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter all the training that they've done. It doesn't matter all the experience that they have. That all of a sudden they're, they're not able to perform to the ultimate ability. Which always kind of didn't make sense to me. Because it's like if you want to prove you're the best marksman in the world. Why do you like bring people into a fun house where like they can't like you know, you know, focus. And, and they're not on, on their A game. But that's, that was the movie. That's kind of why it's ridiculous. Um, but they didn't know what to listen to. What to pay attention to. They didn't know what was real and what was fake, it, it all looked real to them. And, and so at the, at the end of this opening scene, you, you, you kind of, the, the guy, the man with the golden gun, he wins, and then he turns around and he shoots a mannequin of James Bond. And so you kind of get, you kind of find out that he's like gunning for James Bond. And so the whole movie, you're just like, oh no, like James Bond's going to get like sucked into this thing and this alternate reality kind of fun house, you know, at a fair sort of thing. And, and how in the world is he going to win and, and stuff like that? And that's how the whole movie goes on. And the reason I was thinking of this in, in relationship to this passage this morning is that our our world is set up like a funhouse at a fair. Our world is full of noises and voices and mannequins and replicas of the real thing to such a degree that it, once we get sucked into it, there's a lot to see, a lot that's cool, a lot, a lot that is interesting. But it's easy to get turned around in such a way that we no longer know what to trust and what is real. This is what our world is like. And here we see this taking shape in Ephesus at this time. That, that there's this issue that comes up that Demetrius, a silversmith, he, he, he kind of looks around and he realizes, oh my goodness, like it, th this Paul guy, like the things that he's saying, I, I, actually, I actually might lose money because of this. And, and so he sends Ephesus into a rage. And, and, and before we kind of even get even deeper into this this morning, I kind of want to give you some of the context of everything that's going on here because it would be really easy to see this just simply as some guy that's greedy realizes that his business is getting pinched by some competition and so he sets out on a smear campaign to get everybody riled up and kick the new guy out of town. But there's a whole lot more than that going on here. You see, Artemis wasn't just any goddess. Uh, Artemis was different in what she stood for, what the reason people worshipped her. Artemis was actually the protector of the family. Artemis stood in Greek and Roman cu culture for family values, for the family staying together. Artemis was not just the protector of the family, Artemis was also the protector of political and cosmic stability. Most temple cults in Paul's day were focused on and centered around the worship of self-indulgence. That these gods were basically created in our image to give way into our baser instincts of the things we want to do and yet know we shouldn't do. And so the idea being, if we can tie that into the worship of a deity, then we have free license to do these things, and it's okay, especially in the public eye. But Artemis 
was different. The worship of Artemis was different. Artemis stood for the family, political stability, cosmic stability. And it's for that very reason that the temple cult of Artemis was the biggest temple cult outside of the imperial cult in all of Rome. There were, they have discovered over 30 temples to Artemis across the entire Roman Empire. And the biggest was the one in Ephesus. You see, the temple in Ephesus wasn't just any temple. This wasn't just any temple dispute. The temple to Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. So big that the famous Parthenon in Athens was four times smaller than the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. This, they, they believe that this temple, um, when you got to it, that the pillars of the temple themselves were 60 feet high, six stories into the air. This was a time when there were no skyscrapers. The tallest buildings you would see were maybe two stories in the air. 60 feet high, just the pillars of this temple. Over 500 feet long, a few hundred feet wide, it was massive. And so because of that, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was a place of pilgrimage. It was a place of great worship. And that resulted in it not just being a temple of worship. It was also a world bank. It was the center of economic prestige and power. And it meant a great deal to whoever was around it, but also to the entire world. If the temple to Artemis was in any way compromised and the economic dealings that were going on there were somehow undercut, it wasn't just that Ephesus would struggle. It wasn't just that some silversmith would struggle. It's that the entire world's economy would be called into question. You see, Ephesus itself wasn't just any town where this happened either. Uh, the temple to Artemis was actually, at this time, the third version of the temple. It had been destroyed once, burnt down by a crazy guy another time. This was the third time that the temple had been built. And this time, the town of Ephesus had raised money itself to pay for its construction. It wasn't some wealthy benefactor. It wasn't the government at large. It wasn't Rome. It was the town of Ephesus. And so because of that, the Ephesians saw themselves as the protector of Artemis. That's why they say there in the passage we just read, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. She is our God, we are her people, and she is the one that maintains the family, political stability, Rome itself, and we're the ones protecting her. In their mind, in this crowd's mind, it wasn't just an issue that somebody was going to lose some money. What we see Demetrius playing off of is multiple layers of importance that people had placed upon Artemis, the temple, and themselves. If they gave in, if they in any way compromised what Artemis, Artemis stood for, then everything would possibly go away. So Demetrius knows this. Demetrius knows this and, and he realizes, I stand to lose a lot of money. And so he goes on, though, to appeal to something more substantial. If we back up there and just kind of rehash what he says, right? He, he, he tells them, he says, we're going to lose a lot of money. 
if Paul keeps saying this, and there is danger, he says, he goes on, he says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and all the world worship. It's almost as if Artemis knows it's not a good enough reason to cause a riot that he's going to lose money, right? I mean, that's his real reasoning. That's, that's the base instinct. That's, that's the first conclusion he comes to. But before he really, as, it's almost like as if he's like, as he's talking, he realizes what he's saying. He's like, oh man, I, I don't think these people are going to go for it. Demetrius is going to lose money, so let's riot. So he says, I need to appeal to something more. I, I, I need to make this about something better. And, and so he, he knows all of the stuff we just talked about, about who Artemis is, about what the temple means, about how Ephesus sees itself. He says, if I can tap into that, if I can make this about something more than just me and my business, then I can get them on board with me. I have to think there was a part here, it wasn't just Demetrius trying to convince the town of Ephesus to join him in this way. He was trying to convince himself that he was about something more than just money. He was about something more than just his business. That, that he goes, oh yeah, you know, yes, my business is going to suffer, but you know what's really important, guys? The family and stability. And the fact that we don't let these people come in and undermine our culture and our society. The reason I, I, I'm willing to make this jump and say I, I think that Demetrius had to be thinking this is because we do this very thing because we all know what the right answer is all the time, right? We know what it is we feel and yet we also know a lot of times with our feelings whether or not we can say it, whether or not we want to realize it is that, okay, I, I get it. That's just not good enough. That's not going to fly. That's not going to sound the right way if I say that out loud to people. So maybe I need to kind of make this about something else. And it is about something else. It's not about money. It's about families. We have to protect families, guys. We are really good at lying to ourselves, are we not? about telling ourselves that we naturally care about deeper, more righteous convictions like truth and love, justice, all of these things that we know when we say nobody can disagree with. They can disagree with whether or not our comfort is worth writing for, but they can't disagree with justice. They can't disagree with truth. The reason we know that we're really good about lying to ourselves, the reason we know that we're not about the deeper, more righteous convictions that we'd like to think we are is because Scripture tells us this. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He actually is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting a place from Ecclesiastes as well as a psalm. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. What Paul's saying there to put it in context is he's saying when you and I are left to our own selves, we always go the wrong way. No one seeks after God. No one on their own is truly about the right thing. We are all turned inwards upon ourselves. We are selfish by nature by, because of sin. And so because of that, we cannot say, apart from God, when we're left to ourselves, 
that any of us, when the chips are really down, when everything's out on the table, when all the stakes are at their highest, can we say, we're going to be about anything other than me? It's because of this and this knowledge that we have to know that of all the voices in our world, of all the distractions that we have, the one that we ultimately can't trust and is probably the hardest not to trust because we want to believe we are about the right thing is ourselves. I can't trust my own voice. As much as I would like to believe that I really do care about other people more than myself. I have to be willing to admit that when I'm left to my own devices, I will always win out. And what we see going on in Demetrius is the same thing that happens in all of our lives, and that is when we come up against the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that calls us to lay down our life. To surrender all that we could possibly could hang on to. to. To give our life over to Him in obedience to Him. In service to Him. To know Him and to do His will, not our own will. When we come up against that gospel that calls us to that, we will not naturally, easily give in to that. And what's more is we will continually fight against that in our lives. Our biggest hang-ups in coming to Jesus Christ and to living for Him are not what we think they are. That we actually find that truth and love don't motivate us like we want to think they do. That actually, maybe what is more important to us is our comfort and our security. Much like Demetrius here. That, and that we only attach these deeper things of truth and love and justice and, and things that we want to say that we care so deeply about, we only attach them to our life that we have already created so that they benefit us. So that we can say, Oh no, look, I'm really about Artemis and the temple and to make sure that people still worship her the right way. This might still be hard for us to believe, but we know what this looks like, don't we? We know what this looks like because we see it in Peter. We see it in Peter countless times with Jesus, a man who walked on water, who saw the miracles of Jesus, who was even told, you're going to be the cornerstone of my church. When Jesus, just to pick out one example, when Jesus shares with the disciples that he must go and die, that concept of Jesus dying does not fit into Peter's already preconceived plans he had for Jesus and how Jesus was going to benefit his life. Jesus was going to make everything right by becoming king, overthrowing the Romans, and making Peter and the rest of the disciples his heirs apparent to the earthly kingdom that he was going to establish. And the one thing that doesn't fit into that plan is that guy dying. And so Peter tells him, he says, you're wrong. He actually rebukes Jesus, a guy that had done all this stuff. I mean, can you imagine walking around with Jesus and having all those years and having the audacity to stand up to him after seeing the miracles he had done and all of these different things and saying, no, you're wrong. I'm right. But why does Peter do this? Because maybe the things that matter more to us are our security and our comfort. And not truth and love and justice and these other things like, that we like to think are really what matters most to us. We know what this looks like because it's what bothers us about other people, isn't it? That we see that other people all the time 
have ulterior motives that aren't really about what they say they're about. And we also see this in other people because we get upset, don't we, when it doesn't seem like the truth, the facts, or the idea of how certain things affect other people really doesn't do anything to change someone's mind on a subject, right? I don't think I need to go into that in very much detail. I mean, you just say politics right now, right? And it's like, when have you ever seen anybody change their mind politically? And it doesn't matter how much truth you give them, how much facts from your point of view, it doesn't seem to phase them. Why? Because maybe truth and facts and empathy don't matter to us the way we think they do. We see this in other people. We see other people doing this. The crazy question is, why do we think we're any different? Why do we think we operate differently than they do? If we can say, man, they're so stubborn, they're so hard-headed, they, they just won't give in to the truth of things. They don't matter about the right things. What makes us think we are different than that? And so because of that, we cannot trust our own voice in this world. It is a voice that if we listen to will steer us down the wrong path every time because when we get to the heart of the issue at the deepest part of our hearts, we are not about the good things we think we're about. And the only thing that's worse than me by myself is me and a crowd of other people like me. And we see that in Ephesus here. As we go on and we read in verse 28 through 34, it says, When they heard this, saying the crowd, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to go into the venue. So, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Sure pandemonium. Just like craziness all over the place. See, as we feel the gospel challenge us where we like it the least, as Demetrius was feeling the pressure that the gospel was putting on him in his life, and it was threatening the very thing he valued the most, that was his business, his comfort, his security, his economic standing. When we feel the gospel creeping into our life, we don't just stand by and idly just be uncomfortable. We search out people to commiserate with us. We seek other people to tell us it's all right and that the way that we're feeling isn't wrong because we think that there is strength in numbers. And we try to convince others that what bothers us should bother them. We rally people to the cause. And so if we know that we can never start on our own, in a place that is pure, in a place that is right, we have to know then that the crowd is never what it says it's about. 
See, the Ephesians are running around and, and, they're, and they're saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and everything that Artemis stands for. And yet what we know, what we can see here through all of this playing out is that what is fueling this crowd in Ephesus is, isn't faith, it isn't hope, it isn't love or the family or solidarity. It's none of those things. Why do we know that? Because they call this man Alexander Ford. And what does it say there? It says that when they found out he was a Jew, they just shouted him down. This isn't civil. This isn't for the reasons that they're saying it for and what it's about. No, they actually give into the voice that tempts us, that tempts all of us to engage in the scrum. The voice that tempts us to win the debate, to score a win, to maneuver for domination, to exercise influence, and if we must, to even cloak it in some greater truth like the gospel, and in doing that, to even cause greater harm. Because once we know that there is a group of people that feel the way that we do, we are emboldened to make sure we get our way. And we even tell ourselves it's about something that it's not. And so we know, not only can we not trust our voice, we can't trust the crowd's voice. That no matter how many people yell it, no matter how many people agree with you, no matter how strong the support seems to be, we can never fully trust that they are coming from a good, pure place and motivation. We like to think that more people means more consensus. And that actually, by having more people, it might even result in moderation, right? That if we can just get everybody on board, somehow everything will balance out and we won't go too extreme. But the crowd, the group, always moves us to the extreme, doesn't it? It always tells us, no, 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 you're right, and so you don't need to give in. You don't need to find common ground. You don't even need to see the opposition as people. Because they are so wrong and off. The crowd tells us. That it must be done this way or that way. And it has to be our way. Why? Because there's enough of us and what are you going to do? This is the very reason why we say things like groupthink and mob rules. And we just accept them and we say, oh yeah, that's a real thing. Because crowds will always push us to the extreme. The more of us there are that believe the same thing, the more right we think we are and the more extreme we become in our views. Our world is full of voices. Our own crowds, groups, political parties, organizations, nonprofits, all of these different things that are telling us what we should think, what we should feel. What is right? What is just? What is true? What matters most? It feels like, I don't know if you guys feel this way, it feels like our world has gone mad. That it is so extreme, so far apart, that people are so diametrically opposed to one another that there's no way of possibly ever finding any common ground and the best thing to do is just Maybe separate. Go our separate ways. Never talk with one another. Find out that they believe something you don't believe. Just cut off the relationship. What do you do 
in a world that has gone mad, full of voices, mirrors, mannequins that look real to such a degree that you don't know what to trust anymore. I can tell you what James Bond did. At the end of the movie, The Man with the Golden Gun, we're back there, um, James Bond finds himself in the funhouse. And he's all over the place, and it looks like for a while, like, he's going he's gonna to lose it. And uh, the whole time you're thinking, too, like, why doesn't the man with the golden gun just, like, jump out and shoot him at this point? Because he's, like, totally, you know, doesn't know up from down and what's real and what's not. But there comes this point when James Bond stumbles upon the end of the funhouse, and he's actually able to get outside of it. And to get to a place where he can see the whole thing... Gaining a perspective of being able to regain what is true and what isn't true. So that he can enter back in knowing what to focus on and what to cloud out. What to push away. Now, I don't want to spoil the ending for you guys. You know, it's 1973. Maybe you're still trying to catch up on it and stuff. But he wins. It's the reason why there's like... 80 more movies after that one. He gains a different perspective. He gets outside. He gets back in touch with what is absolutely true. And we actually see someone, like I said earlier, a pagan calling the people back to this. Look at there in verses 35 and 36 with me. And when the town clerk, that's actually the mayor, most people believe, so we'll just say mayor. And when the mayor had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So what he's referring to there is what we talked about before. Everything that Artemis meant, how great they think Artemis is over everything. That she is the keeper of not just the family, but political and cosmic stability. That nothing is bigger than that. What's more is they're not really sure what he's referring to as the sacred stone. They think it might be some meteorite or just a statue that was made. But it was something of great importance that told Ephesus again how great they were and how powerful Artemis was. But basically what he says to them there is he says, do you really believe what you say you believe? You guys go on talking about how great Artemis is, how she is all-powerful, how we can look to the temple and the opulence of it all, that this World Bank that holds up the world's economic system is a, points directly to her great power and her being over everything. And yet here you guys are getting all riled up because some guy named Paul wrote it and said, God's made with human hands aren't real. It doesn't sound like she's, you think she's as powerful as you say she is. If Artemis is this great God, the mayor says, then there is nothing to worry about here. He is pointing out to the crowd that they have been relying on other things than they say they have. They have been listening to other voices. 
And he tells them, he says, when you guys do this, you're going to crumble. You're going to fall apart. And all of the stuff that you say you believe in because you are going in a different direction, it will be lost. He says, be quiet. If she is as powerful as we say she is and believe she is, we have nothing to worry about. This is so important for us as followers of Jesus because as we find ourselves in the fun house that is our world filled with voices and distractions and not being able to discern what is true or not, we must work diligently to constantly get outside of this world and regain what is absolutely, undoubtedly true. And know that I can only trust God's voice in all of this. I can't trust myself. I can't trust the crowd. I can only trust it. It must be his voice we listen to, not above the others. It must be his voice that we listen to alone. I said, you know, it feels like like in Ephesus here, just kind of the world going mad. I, I don't think I need to draw out like how this scene is so similar to our world these days. There was someone else who lived in a time where it seemed like everything was just upside down. It was all lost. It was all going wrong. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian who lived uh, in Germany during the Nazi reign. Uh, actually became a conspirator against Hitler, was eventually executed for a plot to assassinate Hitler. Um, In a letter in 1942 written to other pastors uh, entitled, Who Stands Fast? Bonhoeffer asked the question. He was asking the question that I think so many of us are asking is, how do you survive? How do you stand fast? How do you stand for what is true, what is just? How do you be about the right thing? in a time where it is impossible to tell what is true and what is not, what is God's way and what is not. There were so many pastors of Bonhoeffer's day that had sold themselves to the Nazi party, believing that it was the Nazi party that was God's instrument in the world. Bonhoeffer said this, he says, Who stands fast? Only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, or his virtue. All good things that I would say we look to, we say is worth it, we say we should trust in. But it's the one who is ready to sacrifice all of this when he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith and an exclusive allegiance to God. The responsible man or woman who tries to make their whole life an answer to the question and voice of God. Bonhoeffer says that we must be willing to lay down the good things of this world so that we can be sold out for God's best. And if we at any point try to put the two together, if we try to say, well, it can be both. That's the moment we start losing our grip on what is true. That we start listening to the other voices 
than God's. Because those voices are loud and God will not shout over them. He will wait for us to be still and to listen and to know that he is God. This is why Jesus often retreated to pray in the midst of ministry. This is why Jesus knew scripture by heart and was constantly reciting it. And not just speaking but living his life out of what he had put in. His life was dictated by an intimate connection and relationship to the Father that shaped everything. This wasn't just that Jesus had found something and added it into his already preconceived notions. Everything that he was is shaped by God. Because he is God, but also the human side of him allowed himself to be stripped down. So that he no longer held on to his own will, his own desires, his own comfort, his own security. But was about willing to lay down even these good things that Bonhoeffer talks about. Reason, principles, conscience, freedom, virtue even if need be. For God and God alone. Because God is greater over all of those things. This is why the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus are so challenging and so confusing to many of us still today. Because as Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. It's not that Nicodemus doesn't understand, you know, as we often take it to be. Nicodemus just has no framework for, for computing what Jesus is talking about. Why would a guy like Nicodemus need to be born again? Isn't it the drug addicts, those in prison, those who are deep in repeated habitual sin, or even maybe people in the other political party, aren't they the ones who need to be born again? Jesus says, no, actually, it's all of us. That we need to be born again so that it is God's voice that shapes us. It's not our mentor's voice. It's not our ideology. It's not our culture. It's not our race. It's not our past experiences. It's not our emotions. It's not our desire for comfort or the good life or whatever else it might be able to be that we say is worth it, that is good. It is only his voice we listen to because it's only his voice we can trust in. The fact that we can only trust in God's voice is good news. Usually I think the gospel can look to us like it's like this thin line. It's like, oh, how are we supposed to do that? Man, that's hard. And, oh, man, this is asking so much of me. And this is challenging and that sort of thing. But if you look at it the other way, you understand that that the gospel message and what we're talking about today is so good for us. Because no longer is it choosing between the lesser of two evils. No longer do we have to choose between ourselves or the crowd or figure out which one's wrong or, or just saying, okay, well, you know what, it, I'll just go with these people. Yeah, it, it, it's not everything I want it to be, but at least it's something. It's moving in the right direction. No longer do we have to rely on ourselves and others who are as lost as we are. We have a direct connection to the Father, the same connection that Jesus Christ did. So that we can trust in his voice. So that we can live his way. So that we can be people that know truth. All of it. And we actually live for it. That we can be people built on faith. That don't just simply talk of faith. And when the times get tough, we act like everybody else does. That we can be people 
that seek to show love to everyone in every situation, understanding that there is nothing that divides us. That the thing that is the real issue in our world is sin. And there is a remedy for that. His name is Jesus Christ. Psalm 18, 118 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There are a lot of voices in our world right now telling you to trust in them. Telling you what is true. What is fact. What is most important. They are smoke and mirrors meant to distract you from the one voice you can trust in. And that's God's. We all need to be reminded from time to time that our world is meant to distract us and get us focused on lesser things. And that this needs to be a time that we step outside of the rest of the noise and we get back in touch with what is true and what is real. And that is God and his word. Let's pray. Father, would you come this morning and would you speak to us? Would you show us the truth of your word? Would you show us the hope that is inherent in life lived for you and with you? And Father, would you help us? Please, please help us to desire nothing more than hearing your voice. Would you help us to strip out the other noise? Would you help us Lord, to seek after truth and love and mercy and justice and the things that are dear to your heart. Lord, would we seek them from you? Not from ourselves, our friends, our family, the world, our politicians, our leaders, CEOs, people that we look up to and we say, wow, they figured something out. Because, Lord, when it comes down to it, we are all in the same place. We all need Jesus Christ. Would you remind us of that? Lord, help us, especially in this season and in the place that our world finds itself in, to be people that are different because we are not listening to ourselves. We are not listening to the crowd. We are listening to Jesus Christ alone. Father, if we've lost our way in that, would you, in your loving kindness, bring us back? And may we once again sit at your feet and proclaim, you are God. Great is our God in all the world. Not just Oregon City or Ephesus, but everywhere. And he is doing great things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.